Hi, this is J.D. Tulasic, and welcome. This podcast is sponsored by the cultural programs of the National Academy of Sciences. On February 18, 2010, Wanda Austin delivered the second annual African American History Lecture at the Keck Center in Washington, D.C. Dr. Austin was introduced by the President of the National Academy of Engineering, Dr. Charles Vest. It's a pleasure to welcome all of you here this evening. I have indeed a very pleasant task introducing tonight's speaker and want to begin by welcoming all of you to the second annual African American History Program Lecture. Although this is only our second lecture in this program, the program itself was established in 1985 and it reminds us all of the important contributions that African Americans have made to all fields of human endeavor, including science, engineering, medicine, and the arts. The AAHP program is jointly sponsored by the three academies, the National Academy of Sciences, the National Academy of Engineering, and the Institute of Medicine. Our guest lecture tonight, Dr. Wanda M. Austin, is internationally recognized for her contributions to the field of aerospace engineering and is a member of the International Academy of Astronautics. She is the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Aerospace Corporation, which since it was founded in 1960 has provided independent technical and scientific research, development and advisory services to the national securities space programs of the United States. A National Academy of Engineering member, just in case you didn't hear, a National Academy of Engineering member, <laughs> Dr. Austin was previously the general manager of the Military Satellite Communications Division, where she was responsible for systems engineering support to the Air Force. She is the recipient of numerous prestigious awards and citations, including the National Intelligence Medallion for Meritorious Service, the Air Force Scroll of Achievement, the National Reconnaissance Office Gold Medal, the 19, uh, 2009 Black Engineer of the Year Award, and in 2007, she was inducted into the Women in Technology International Hall of Fame. She has received the U.S. Air Force Meritorious Civilian uh, Service Medal, the Air Force Space and Missile Systems Center's Martin Luther King Spirit of the Dream Award, and in 2008 received a Special Achievement Award from the 100 Black Men of Los Angeles. Throughout her aerospace engineering career, Dr. Austin has made wise choices about where to focus her talents. During her lecture this evening, she will address how living by your values and working for an employer whose values you admire, you can achieve the desired results that make a huge difference for communities, for companies, and for citizens. Wanda. Well, good evening. Thank you all for being here. Any lecture would have done tonight as an escape to get out of the house and get you know away from the snow. So I totally appreciate that uh, many of you are feeling a newfound freedom after the experiences of last week. I have to tell you that uh, those of us who are on the other coast totally sympathized with uh, the amount of snow that kept rolling in and rolling in and rolling in. So really glad that you're all here. Uh, Dr. Vast, uh, Dr. Feinberg, really thank you very much for the invitation to be the second lecture uh, of this series. This is a very um, a great honor for me, um, first of course, to be an NAE member and really proud to have that distinction. And humble to be here at the podium addressing this very bright, very energetic and forward-thinking audience. Um, I want to also add my congratulations to the new class of NEA members who were announced just yesterday and uh, really look forward to working with all of them as well. I wanted to... Um, in recognition of this being the African American History Program lecture series, take a few minutes to share a few thoughts about, you know, why do we have these celebrations? A few years back, 
I came across a comment that was attributed to a very famous, very well-educated, very talented actor. Uh, he was quoted as saying, why are you relegating my history to just one month? And I'm sure that many of you may have interacted with people who've made similar kinds of con comments or had a, a similar perspective. Or maybe on the flip side, you've run into someone who said, uh, why do we spend a whole month on black history? There are you know, people who share both views. But my response to both of those questions is, duh, it's American history. And if we don't learn from it, we're very likely to repeat our mistakes. History defines our identity. It gives us power. It gives us perspective. I don't know about you, but most of us can't remember what happened last week, let alone what happened last century. And just as in the case for increased cancer awareness, safety preparedness, we do a lot of earthquake preparedness, we focus on an issue for a period of time to try to raise our consciousness about the things that are critical to our survival. So to our famous actor, I say it's unfortunate that it's only a month, but I'm very glad to have this opportunity to focus my attention and remind me of the facts and data regarding the contributions and sacrifices of African Americans to this great nation. February 28th should not mark the end of the learning about black history. But hopefully, sometime during the month, we all gain a better appreciation of how worthy black history is of celebration. To those who say, why do we focus on it at all? I would offer that it is US history. And it is who we all are and what makes this great, this great nation and this country strong. I'm always motivated by occasions like these where we take a moment to reflect on our rich history, take pride in our predecessors who worked hard and sacrificed tremendously in order for us to live the lives that we do, and to be reminded that we must continue to challenge ourselves to be the best that we can be. Understanding one's history is the basis for self-respect. Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who lived from 1875 to 1950, is referred to as the father of Negro history because he made the first systemic effort to treat the records of the race scientifically and to publish his findings. The role of African Americans was at risk of being lost. He ensured that the role of African Americans was neither ignored nor misrepresented. Although blacks have been in America at least as far back as colonial times, it was not until the 20th century that they gained a respectable presence in the history books. So we owe the celebration of Black History Month and more importantly, the documentation of black history to Dr. Carter G. Woodson. In a similar fashion, the Academy plays an important role in advancing and documenting the scientific and engineering achievements of our time. Through the NRC studies and reports, the grand challenges, the technical forums, and the recognition of individual outstanding contributions, the academies are helping to inform our society. I'd like to offer my kudos to the National Academies for establishing the African American History Program Lecture Series. I visited the website and was very impressed with the database of distinguished African American physicians, scientists, and engineers. I'd share a personal story that during my first visit to the Academy, before I was an NAE member, I turned out happened to visit in February and had the opportunity to view the portrait collection and was very much inspired by the photos. So JD, even though we're moving to the digital age and we're gonna make that even more accessible, you might be surprised that uh, the collection has had an impact and inspired people, even though it's a, a little known secret. I'm a true believer in the power of science, medicine, and engineering to bring about fundamental improvements in people's lives around the world. For that reason, 
it's important to nurture the applied scientists, physicians, and engineers who show the most promise in our quest to turn ideas into reality. And as a result, change the world for the better. Getting it right is actually the focus of my comments today. And by getting it right, I don't mean achieving perfection. Perfection is rarely possible, especially in an imperfect and complex world, the kind of world in which we are currently living. In my business, getting it right means working hard over time with discipline and proven techniques to achieve the desired results that make a huge difference for communities, companies, and citizens everywhere. Let me tell you a little bit about how this worked in my life. I grew up in New York City with parents who were very encouraging and told me there were no boundaries to what I could accomplish. For a little black girl in the 60s, that was no small statement, but it was very impactful. They told me that not going to college was not an option for me. That was very important because it said, you know, just keep your eyes straight, stay on the road, um, you know, don't think about going left or right, and that's very important. As a result, I discovered my love of mathematics while growing up. I didn't discover engineering until I was tutoring engineering students in mathematics. I thought about teaching, I thought about actuarial science, had taken the first two exams, so I was clearly in search of you know, what was the thing that was going to capture my uh, heart? As a result of tutoring these students, I discovered I could use my interest in applied mathematics to address real-world problems. I might confess that I also discovered that the earning potential was better for <laughs> engineers than for mathematicians. So in any case, I was hooked. I knew then that I had discovered my career field. We never know how far good preparation and hard work will take us. I learned that in an early age that a lot was possible if you worked and studied and prepared yourself to take advantage of opportunities. My parents were determined that my sisters and I were going to get it right. They instilled this in me and for that I'm very grateful. Getting it right requires focus, purpose, drive, patience, discipline, a big heart in addition to academic credentials and technical skills. I think it's reasonably safe to say that our new president, who's just completed his first year in office, is facing unprecedented challenges each and every day in this young administration. And he is trying hard to get it right. And it appears that he understands what it takes to make things work and put people back to work once again. We can only hope that he succeeds on our behalf. President Obama has both demonstrated and embodied three important things when it comes to getting it right. First, we need to get it right personally. That means at home with our families and in giving back to our communities. Getting it right means getting it right at school and at work. We must incorporate this attitude and ethos into our daily life to be truly successful and to truly go above and beyond the horizon. It has to become a part of who we are. Second, getting it right is more than just doing the right thing. It's a moral and ethical commitment we make to those around us. A pact that says we're going to do all we can all the time to reach necessary, important, and meaningful goals. We have to ensure that these goals will improve things for many people and that we will accomplish them in the right way. As you saw in the video, at Aerospace we work with our customers to support the successful launch of satellites into space and help keep them orbiting safely and securely. As a space industry executive, I'm aware that our business, like many others, has gone global, and at the same time, 
It is under severe budget pressure. This makes it more important that we be at the top of our game so that we can get it right with the available resources. I view getting it right as a guiding principle or a navigation system, if you will, for each and every decision, whether I'm in the boardroom, the launch control room, or the cafeteria. Ours is an unforgiving business where every decision matters. Third, it's important to remember that there are no shortcuts or easy outs when we're talking about getting it right. If you're looking for instant results or instant gratification, I think you'll be disappointed. More often than not, getting it right is very, very hard. Despite the TV commercial, in the real world, there is no easy button. The consequences of failure can be significant, of course. Big systems engineering projects are often in the news, usually because they are over budget by billions and years behind schedule. For these projects, getting it right means having the skill to identify how much risk is really in the project and to have the experience and creativity to do something about it. Making something that is truly complex simpler is the art of the system engineer. But getting it right requires technical leaders who have the courage and the skill to speak out and convince others about the right course of action. Today's systems engineering projects have become so large that they stretch the boundaries of our ability to organize and execute the projects. A single space project may require a $20 billion investment. Now I know in stimulus dollars that's not a lot of money, but I think it's a lot to make in a single investment. It will likely require that several major corporations and government agencies work together for more than a decade in order to produce results. The technical and organizational complexity of these projects is daunting, or at least it should be. And the problem will only get worse. In the future, we're going to need a lot more technical leaders, people who see beyond systems engineering if we are to address this problem. So, getting it right starts with each individual. It requires doing the right thing in the right way, and there's no easy button. But I also have to tell you that there's no greater reward, no greater sense of accomplishment than when you get it right. As CEO, I'm constantly thinking of ways to communicate the importance of getting it right to everyone at Aerospace. It isn't always easy, even though we have some of the smartest and most committed people you'll find anywhere in corporate America. We're an organization of 4,000 employees. We have 10 operating locations. We have 80,000 square feet of laboratory space. Last year, our revenues as a nonprofit was $885 million. And in case you think being CEO means you finally made it to the top and you're in charge, I have a board of 20 people who you know, disavow me of that knowledge on a regular basis. So it's a challenge for me to communicate across the organization the importance of getting it right. Our values. Time and time again, I find myself turning to our company's five core values in order to make the point about getting it right. These values have helped keep us successful as an enterprise on the ground and in the air for nearly 50 years. June 4th, we will have our 50th birthday. So I have faith in the values. And so do my colleagues, so do my partners in industry, and so do my customers. I will tell you that each of the five values, mission success, technical excellence, commitment to people, objectivity, and integrity, maps directly back to getting it right. I honestly believe they've had a profound impact on what we deliver and how we deliver it to our customers. It's ironic. 
Our values are qualitatively rich. They're not just words. But so much of what we do is based on quantitative engineering analyses. I think that goes to show that there's no mathematical equation or scientific formula for getting it right. You have to want to do this. It has to be essential to your very being. As I step through our five corporate values, you're going to hear stories about hardworking people at our company, people who are committed to the mission. You'll also hear how they delivered success in their own unique way. That leads me to our first core value, dedication to mission success. So many people I've worked with embody this value, this 100% commitment to space mission success. All of our values feed this one of getting it right all the time. Space operations and space launch are tough, demanding businesses. It's expensive, and we only get one chance to get it right. When we don't get it right, it costs us billions of dollars and immeasurable lost capability. We need a unified approach to mission assurance that is repeatable, timely, and predictive. And we need everyone, government and industry, to use this standardized process. This requires breaking through silos and enforcing standards. In the space business, you not only have to get it right, you have to get it right the first time and every time. To do that, you have to use a very disciplined development process that builds confidence in the system in small steps throughout the life of the project. Disciplined work by the prime contractors is the basis for good mission assurance. We sometimes refer to this as the first line of defense. At various times in the project, progress must be demonstrated to the procurement agency through test or analyses. Often these analyses are so complex and subtle that it is prudent to have them independently reviewed. Aerospace is often involved in these two steps. And finally, all of this must be presented to a government decision maker in such a way that he or she feels confident enough to allow a launch, an event in which everything could be lost within minutes if there is the slightest undetected flaw in the system. These challenges are not new. The effort to develop a better mission assurance program was initiated after the 1999 launch broad area review and the 2003 Defense Science Board study recommended that we address serious problems in the U.S. space programs. The goal is to create an environment that delivers 100% mission success by implementing lessons learned, adopting best practices, and sharing of knowledge across agencies, offices, and the industry that supports them. Today as an industry, we share a definition of mission assurance. It is defined as the discipline application of proven scientific engineering quality and program management disciplines, principles, toward the goal of achieving mission success. Our focus is on mission success throughout the program life cycle. By the way, the problem of assuring the mission does not end at launch, as you can see here. Aerospace helps the Joint Space Operations Center track 21,000 objects that are orbiting the Earth. As we saw in the collision in February of 2009 of an Iridium satellite and an inactive Russian satellite, when something goes wrong in space, it is very inconvenient and can get very expensive. This sort of is the corollary to the question about if a tree falls in the woods and there's nobody there to hear it, you know, does it make a sound? Well, if two satellites go bump in space, we all hear it for sure. This problem is quite different from air traffic control. Here, everything is moving at high speed and on the order of kilometers per second. 
And there are no pilots that you can call to assess the situation in real time and make decisions to change direction. Due to the short timelines, frequently there are no second chances or do-overs in our line of work. So you might ask, if we were tracking all of this, why didn't we prevent it from happening? That would be a good question. The answer is, if you look carefully at the diagram, at around each of those satellites is an ellipse which represents the uncertainty that we have about exactly where they are. So if you don't know precisely where something is, it's hard to tell it to move out of the way of something else. Because one, you could have it move into the way of another object that you're not aware of. And two, many, there's no organization that really has accurate information about where every item in space is. So this is a challenge for us going forward. But from the perspective of our values, this value is one that aerospace shares across the entire space agency, this commitment to mission success. When I think about our second value of technical excellence, I realize that in many ways, aerospace is the engineering conscience of space. Over and over again, we're asked to tackle the tough nuts and bolts issues that help get satellites off the ground and keep them orbiting without incident. We're also expected to deliver tough and accurate answers that help others to get it right. And we do. Thanks to people like Matthew Eby, a senior member of the technical staff in the mechanical systems department at our company. When NASA was struggling with the foam debris issue on the space shuttle, Matt worked off a diagram sketched on a napkin by one of his colleagues, John Brecky and then went on to build a sophisticated computer program that assessed the risk posed by this problem. Matt was recognized with a NASA Silver Snoopy Award in 2008 for his unrelenting efforts to help them get it right. Technical excellence also requires innovation. Here you see some of our people holding tiny satellites called PicoSats. They're about 10 centimeters on a side, and less than a kilogram in weight. We build and fly these as part of a research effort that we hope will shape the way we think about ultra-miniaturized systems and how they are best used in space. The fellow second from the right is Siegfried Janssen, who is a pioneer in this field. This team has been pushing the state of the art for many years and has worked often with universities to do so. We celebrate people like Matt, John, and Siegfried because they are our real assets. And this commitment to people has been one of our longstanding core values. And when I say people, I mean all people. Xavier Galindo, a buyer and planner in our procurement department said, diversity isn't just about race, culture, gender, and ethnicity. It also encompasses an individual's ideas, experiences, and perspectives. Xavier's actions speak as loudly as his words. Every year, he works with his customer counterpart at the Space and Missile Systems Center to make sure that those less fortunate have food on their table and a gift or two for their children. In December 2009, his team delivered over 1,500 gifts and enough food to feed 100 families. He was recently recognized for his 18 years of work on the holiday food and gift drive with the Space and Missile Systems Center Content of Character Living the Dream Award. I support Xavier and his view of diversity, and as a CEO I realize that getting it right comes more easily and more freely if you can bring a diverse collection of really smart people together and fully empower them to do their best thinking and best work. That brings me to our fourth core value, objectivity. This is perhaps the toughest one to achieve because if you're not truly independent without the slightest hint of prejudice or hidden agendas, you just can't get it right. 
It's been my experience that people who lose their objectivity are usually thinking of themselves and their careers rather than the greater mission and the welfare of others. Our corporate chief engineer, Bill Tosney, and his team of subject matter experts analyzed satellite production and orbital performance for the National Security Space Program to understand the root cause of an increase in mission failures. By sticking to documented facts and avoiding parochial modulation of those facts, the team was able not only to determine the foundational flaws, but also to identify specific recommendations on how to prevent them. Their findings were blunt and to the point. The breakdown, they said, was in the space system acquisition process. By confronting these flaws head on and straight up, they helped both the government and industry take a giant step forward toward getting it right. And that's essential because you usually can't go up and fix a broken satellite. You also can't fix a rocket once it's been launched. The data here shows that early in the flight program for new launch vehicles, failures are largely due to engineering design problems and process errors. In fact, 76% of the failures are caused by design and process problems. To catch these problems, you have to have an experienced team and be objectively looking for them early in the program. The same logic works for space systems. Here you can see that a good mission assurance process begun early in the program can lower the probability of failure and mission limiting problems from above 20% to around 2%. That's a big difference. These conclusions are drawn from experience and data from the space programs that we run. In tough budgetary times, it is frequently suggested to cut or reduce mission assurance. But given the importance of the payloads that we launch, building systems without mission assurance is something we cannot afford. It takes courage to tell the truth especially in our business where stakes are high and so much rides on a decision. With all that pressure, the temptation is always there to lean forward or to shade things just a bit. But again, how can you ever hope to get things right if you walk away from what's real and from what's really needed? The truth is you can't. And in support of truth-telling, no matter what, we made our fifth core value, integrity. There's one story I'd like to share with you which reinforces the power and strength of this value for me. NASA's had some difficult decisions to make recently that you've all heard about. I was thrilled last year to serve as one member of a 10-person committee for the Presidential Commission on the Review of U.S. Human Spaceflight also been referred to as the Augustine Commission. What an honor to be asked to use systems engineering approaches to inform the president's decision on whether we as a nation return to the moon or go to Mars or go somewhere else. Earlier this month, President Obama announced his decision. But I have to tell you, there's a lot of systems engineering that the NASA administrator, Charles Bolden, will implement before the new plan is finalized in order to maximize our opportunity to get it right. During the Augustine Commission, the aerospace team helped develop the technical and cost assessments for options for human spaceflight, which were examined by that committee. An example of the kind of detail estimates that were made is shown here. Don't freak out, I know it's late. You don't have to, there'll be no test at the end on this chart. But there are a number of options that were being examined. And what we were looking at was the money available for the program of record and what could be accomplished. In this case, the program of record is represented by the dotted uh, blue line. And if you look at the timeline at the very bottom, 
when the shuttle retirement was scheduled to occur, which is FY11, and when the Ares-1 was scheduled to get finished, which happened to be after we retired the space station, you'll see that we don't get to the moon until fiscal year 22, and we don't get an outpost to much later. The top line shows what we would need if we had an unconstrained budget. And the fact of the matter is, we wouldn't get our exploration program until well into the future. We helped analyze many different options to see if there was a strategy or a phasing that gave an attractive answer. But in the end, there wasn't. <coughs> you can see that even with an unconstrained budget, the earliest a moon phase human lunar return could be established was in 2022. And a Mars landing is not even on the chart. That was a result that was very discouraging to many of us who were thrilled by the possibility of exploring the solar system in our lifetimes. But all we could do was treat every option with the same care and be as open with the information as possible. I might add that key elements of the NRC report, America's Future in Space, are also reflected in the NASA FY 2011 budget proposal. The NRC Rationale and Goals Study for US Civil, U.S. Civil Space, which was chaired by General Les Lyles, recommended expanded technology investments, refocusing NASA on advanced developments, expanded commitment to engagement of the commercial space sector, commitment to continued use of the station, and increased funding for NASA. So the NAE added its voice of independence and integrity to provide guidance to our Congress and executive branch on the best path forward. We also have to protect the integrity of the space environment and our space systems. About 50 nations now possess orbiting satellites of which 11 can launch their own. Private corporations now operate 19 launch sites throughout the world providing multiple options for entities that want to get into space. The world increasingly relies on space assets for jobs big and small every day, from locating terrorist training camps in the border regions of Afghanistan, to finding the closest Starbucks, that's what I use it for, to making our bank accounts accessible around the world. But not everyone who goes into space has good intentions. Our Defense Department has noted that the proliferation of knowledge and technology will allow an increasing number of state and non-state entities to challenge our space infrastructure. There's a new domain, the cyber domain, with a very low barrier to entry in which trusted services can in fact and have been disrupted. Information is the backplane required by each of the domains, air, sea, land, and space, and security must be maintained as that information is generated in or transmitted through one of the other domains. Disruption of this flow of information could present serious problems. Many space systems now rely on networks in order to do their jobs. Our satellites are just another node in the network, and these networks link everything together in an unprecedented way. Although your adversary may be on the same network as you, they may not be easy to find. Hence, this cyberspace threat has been likened to irregular warfare. Space as a domain has always been a bit different, but this presents some very unique challenges. Space has been described by my friend and colleague Norm Augustine as a place where no one is in charge, pirates threaten it, and no one agrees on how to govern it. So clearly there's much work to be done. At aerospace, I see this determination to get it right all the time, especially when it pertains to this final core value, integrity. So what can we do? What can be done? How can we get it right in a world that at least temporarily seems to have gone wrong? Well, from my perspective, it's about one step in the right direction after another. And all, you have the, and all of you have the opportunity to be an important part 
of the answer. It starts with helping each other to get on the right paths. We need to help our students make the changes and sacrifices necessary for them to establish good study habits, build their self-confidence, and set their goals very, very high. It also requires that each of us examine closely how we set our personal goals for the future. We must mentor the next generation to guarantee that they are prepared and empowered to take advantage of all the opportunities that are available to them. If we stay focused on the things that matter, if we keep our hearts open, if we work hard to get it right, we'll definitely move in a positive direction, even in the face of what seems like overwhelming odds. Despite the difficulties, despite the setbacks, getting it right must still be our North Star in good times and bad. It is the real infrastructure the true stimulus that will improve innovation and the quality of life for millions of people as we try to build a solid and better future for all the generations to come. So in closing, I thank you again very much for inviting me to be here this evening and for the opportunity to present the second African American History Program Lecture. It's a great way to remind us all of the outstanding contributions which have been made by people of African American heritage and through our celebration of these successes, we inspire and educate, which ultimately increases our respect and appreciation for the uniqueness and contributions of everyone. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Austin, thank you so much uh, for the presentation this evening. It's very inspirational. Thank you for your time and coming this evening. Uh, she she has agreed to uh, take some questions, uh, but we um, are recording this for our archive. So if you don't mind, there are two microphones on either side. If you could, wouldn't mind standing up and walking to the microphones if you have a question. Anyone? Yes, hi, this is Linda Kilroy, and I talked to Dr. Austin just briefly before the meeting. Um, one of the things I, I did want to ask her and didn't have a chance was, um, I think uh, mathematics is, is and science, uh, especially for uh, women, but I think it's a field that you know is getting more and more interest, and I just wanted to comment that I thought the show Numbers uh, that came out a couple of years ago, it's one of my favorites, and uh, I think it's really inspirational to kids uh, because it shows how uh, numbers can do something more than just be numbers on a page, that they can solve problems. What I'm wondering, because I'm not a math major, uh, I'm wondering how realistic is that show in terms of, I mean, it sells a, a great product, but is that really realistic what uh, they're doing or is that kind of more Hollywoodish? Well, I live near Hollywood, so I feel perfectly qualified to answer that question. <laughs> Um, I think Hollywood's about, you know, selling ads and advertising and, and attracting people to the show. I think there are a number of shows where we've seen an upsurge in an area of interest as a result of a, a television program. And I think it's a medium that we should use to inspire our young people to technical careers. Uh, I think that they, you know, obviously know that they've got, you know, 51 minutes or wherever it is, many it is to get a story across and get a point across. And so... Uh, I don't know that I'd want to go out and try to replicate their data. Uh, but I would also say things like CSI, where you, know, you show the value of science and uh, the value of being careful in how you collect data and analyze it and how you don't make judgments about people, but you make sure the facts support any assertions that you make. Those are the kinds of messages that you want to get across to students. I'll share a personal story about how I got into mathematics. It wasn't because mathematics was easy or because I just you know, automatically was able to ace it. Uh, it was because I didn't like English. I had an English teacher who told me as I read, you know, um, English literature that, you know, she thoroughly knew what was in the author's mind and, you know, all of these things foreshadowed that and this meant something else and this was a symbol. And I, I challenged it and I said, you know, how in the world do you know that? Well, needless to say, I was not one of her favorite students. 
after that. Uh, and I discovered that in math, if I did it right and got the right answer, no one could challenge it. You know, you had to give me credit for it. It wasn't up to you to decide or to say, well, that's really just a B because, you know, I don't really think girls should be in that line. Either you had it or you didn't. Uh, so I think that we should look at the television programs as a way to encourage our young people about options other than sports or entertainment or, you know, anything else there where, you know, they may have a very small opportunity to succeed to areas which are, will serve them well in life. And I think math and science uh, are areas that fall into that category. Great. Thanks for the question. Dr. Austin, I'm Harvey Feinberg. I want to thank you also for a wonderful presentation. I think those core values could uh, benefit all of us in our, in our work and lives. I wanted to ask you a question uh, really about your own career trajectory, maybe an extension of what you just were commenting on. And I'm curious whether there was ever a time in your career that you felt especially at a critical moment or challenged or doubtful or wondering what the correct next thing to do was and how you decided what to do and what it was that led you to make the next right choice in your career? Okay, great question. The answer is I asked my husband. He is a great. I want to take that answer to my wife. He's an artist, okay. Um, seriously, when you we all have these points in our careers where we have to make decisions about what's the next step. Uh, the first engineering job that I had at the you know I, I started in this new career field. I'd gone to school, was all ready to go, and I had a less than enthralling, enthralling experience. Let's put it that way. Uh, it was at the time when the industry was shrinking, when um, the organization that had hired me had gone out of business before I even showed up. And so when I showed up, I was not in the position that I was hired into, but the company found another position for me because they felt they had made this commitment to me. So I was thankful for that. But it was at a time when people were very concerned about their jobs. And so it wasn't an environment that supported continuous learning or let's help the new guy, let's show her how to use it. It was very much a, I know how to do this, I'm not showing it to anybody because then I'll be the next one on the riff list. Um, so that's one of those moments where you say, so maybe there was more to this engineering thing that I didn't think through as well as maybe I should have. Uh, you turn to the people who know you and the people who are supportive of you and uh, who want to see you succeed. And you just, you know, you, you share those fears and doubts with them, and they help you discover, you know, well, what are the options? What are some of the things that we can do? What are different paths that you might take? Or how, who could you go talk to who's, you know, who can help you and provide guidance? Mentors are wonderful in that way. Uh, I'm still in touch with my junior high school math teacher and my college math professor. Uh, these are people who were, you know, really impactful in my life of saying, you can do this. Uh, and you, we all have a few people in our lives who are in our corner. Uh, and they may not be to tell you exactly what are the steps to do, but having people who say, you know, if that's what you want to do, I'll help you map out a course and figure out who to talk to so you can get there. And that's, I think, very, very important, um, no matter what career field you're in. Um, you also have to trust your inner self about what's important to you. If you're in a situation where you're uncomfortable, it's probably for a good reason. There's something that's not aligned with who you are or you're sacrificing in some other aspect of your life uh, and you don't think it's worth the trade. So frequently when I counsel employees or others, I say, you know, you are the only one who can really assess whether you're willing to make that sacrifice in order to, to get the next step. And you need to understand what that is. Uh, if you're waking up in the mornings and not feeling energized about going to work, you probably need to think about where you're working. Uh, there's something there that isn't giving you the fulfillment that you really want to have. I went to aerospace with the expectation of working for two or three years there. And then, you know, I was going to change jobs because you could get 10, 15% raises by changing companies. It was a great way to, you know, bump your salaries up. What happened to me was I just got one interesting assignment after another. I just, you know, was always learning something, excited about what's going on, meeting new people, visiting interesting places, learning about a fascinating business, and... You know, if someone had said to me, you're going to work here for 31 years, I'd said, no way. Not me, not going to happen. 
Here I stand. Yes. I'd like to thank you again for giving us a nice presentation. When I was a little boy, people asked me what I want to do when I grow up, and I, I said I want to be a rocket scientist. All right. So I, I think that you realized that dream on your own. One of the interesting things that I've heard in the media recently is how the space shuttle is about to be retired. And I don't know the exact reasons why the space shuttle is being retired. I always thought that having a launch vehicle that could be a space plane that could fly back onto Earth and you could reuse it was the, the best way to go because you're recycling parts. So I, I don't know your involvement in terms of the manned space mission technologies. If you happen to know why the space shuttle is being retired and what the, the new vehicle that will replace that will be. Okay. Um, with any system, just like your car, it's designed for a particular lifetime. And when you try to extend it beyond that lifetime, it can get very expensive unless, you know, you, you happen to be lucky and have a car that, you know, really uh, is designed with some great quality features in it. But at some point you reach the point where, you know, the expendables are gone, things, you know, just really wear out. Uh, the shuttle program was designed to last, I think, um, about 20 years. We're well beyond that. And we've got smart people that have, you know, redesigned different portions of it. We refurbish it after each launch. Uh, but at some point, statistically, as you look at it, your probability of failure goes up because the system was never designed or intended to be operated in that way. We never achieved the launch rates that we thought we were going to achieve with shuttle. But yet and still, there are things that over time impact your ability to make sure that you have a safe vehicle on which to put human beings at the top of uh, and then light all those explosives and have it go up successfully and, and return successfully. So part of what uh, NASA has been involved in is trying to figure out what is the next step. How do we, you know, where should we be going with respect to human spaceflight exploration? Uh, we had uh, a program that was started by President Bush, Vision for Space Exploration, Moon, Mars, and Beyond. Uh, we ran into some issues, and that chart, the sand chart that I showed you, is really addressing the fact that, one, we didn't fund it the way it, was, it needed to be funded in order for it to be successful in the timelines that we had. And two, they've had some development challenges uh, of issues of trying to develop these new systems and figure out exactly how do we use those. And if, our, if Mars really is our objective, then what are we doing in this program today in terms of investment in technology, developing how do you, you know, use in situ resources, how do you address the problems that are, are inherent in that, how do you make sure you can get back? I mean, everybody wants to sign up to go to Mars, but I think most of them are thinking that there's a ride back, too. So these are some issues that have to be thought through in a system, systematic and systems engineering way. And we're on that path right now well, with the new direction that has just come out. So the president has canceled Constellation. Uh, the Congress has already indicated that, you know, there are some people who have concerns about that. So I don't think the debate and the discussion is over yet. But the expectation and what John Holdren and, and Charlie Bolden have said is, you know, we have a new plan. It's the right plan for NASA. It's the right plan for U.S. space leadership. Uh, and we need to, you know, get on with figuring out exactly how we want to execute it and move forward. So that's exactly where we are today is figuring out what's the next vehicle for um, human spaceflight. One of the things that was recommended both by the NRC study and by the Augustine Commission, which I participated in both of those endeavors, is that, you know, we went to the moon in 1960s. 69. Um, and it's now 40 plus years later. So we asked the, the, the question, you know, has our commercial sector matured sufficiently that we can accomplish launches, at least to the space station, uh, in a more cost-effective manner and allow NASA to use their dollars to focus on some of the other hard problems that, no kidding, have to be solved? Uh, one of the things that we learned in looking at those analyses is that we're spending so much in maintaining uh, the shuttle infrastructure and existing uh, resources that have to be applied uh, to maintaining that, that we can't spend the dollars that we need uh, for the advanced investments. So these are some of the challenges and trades that, that have to be made. No one's proposing to put a human on top of a brand new rocket. 
uh, as I showed in the chart that says, you know, the first seven launches are really critical to, to really ringing out a new system. But we certainly could launch cargo, you know. Uh, we could get our launch rates up, prove that we have some commercial vehicle options, and um, then talk about putting a human on top of a commercial asset. But it is a very risky business, but, and, but it is also a very expensive business, and we have to work our way through uh, laying out what the plan is and then figuring out how we take the inch steps that we need to, to to accomplish the plan. Yes, sir. Hi, Dr. Austin. Uh, two questions and one opinion, which you can also come on, comment on if you'd like. Uh, they, it's nice to have a president that actually is willing to base facts and figures on scientific study instead of Texas cowboy hunches. So uh, I'm curious to see what your opinions and comments are on that. But uh, dealing with facts and figures of the last couple of years, what are your uh, opinions and feelings on the studies about the, how women in math and science are hitting the glass ceiling uh, in today's uh, field and education, as well as the studies that are out about uh, Asia and other parts of the world that are exceeding the American students on math and science uh, in, in those particular fields and where we're going as a, as a population, as a country as well. Okay, lots of questions in there. Um, I think that um, as CEO... One of the things that I try to do is get as many facts and figures in front of me before we make any decision. And unfortunately, I don't get the, the pleasure of perfect knowledge uh, when you have to make decisions. If, if it was a decision where there was perfect knowledge, nobody would ever bring it to me. They'd go ahead and make the decision and, and press ahead. Uh, and so you have to, to the best of your ability, minimize the unknowns or at least understand what you don't know and then put something in place that you know maybe allows you to have a plan B that says, hey, if we get more information and we discover that uh, we went in the wrong direction, we can recover from that. So I think that that's just good decision making. I think we each and every one of us try to do that in our own lives. Uh, it, as you run a corporation, there's just you know a little bit more variability and, and the number of issues that fall in that category are, are pretty large. I rely very much on our staff. Uh, you know, I, I never lose any sleep about technical problems because I know that we have bright people in this world who can figure it out. Um, so I, I, I rely on that quite heavily. As far as the glass ceiling is concerned, um, I think we've made some progress. I think if you look across certainly the U.S., the number of female role models that you see very visibly has increased significantly. Uh, I'm looking forward to the day when we can introduce someone without saying, you know, the first female, you fill in the blank, you know, or the first African-American. You know, I, I'm looking forward to the day when we say, that's so old, we don't even need to say that. You know, um, it, it's, it is something that is true about them, but it, it isn't the aha that, you know, we finally have one. And I think um, we're making some progress there. I think statistically, and I haven't seen recent studies, but the last time I looked at it, statistically, we haven't made great strides. Uh, as you look across the fields in, in our, uh, certainly in our um, college uh, population and in early career fields, I'm not seeing huge numbers uh, of women and minorities in those fields. We're still having to work very hard. And I think a lot of the challenge there is the fact that in elementary education, if you don't have that basic foundation, you are behind. You are disadvantaged from day one. No one can come to you in high school and talk to you about a career uh, as a doctor or as a scientist uh, if you say, well, I only took Algebra 1. Um, that conversation is over. No counselor is ever going to even suggest that you would do that. So I think we still have a lot of work to do from that perspective. But I do think that um, as we look around the world, even in our world leaders, you see women, you know, taking on significant roles in countries that years ago you would never have imagined that. I think that other countries recognize the value of science engineering and have made it a priority and are making the investments to make sure that their students have access to that education. I think that's an area where we don't, we're not all pulling together here in the U.S. to get that done. We're starting to have discussions about STEM 
Uh, we've had several reports, RAGS uh, came out and uh, other reports that have come out to hit the point that there is a STEM challenge here. Uh, but we, we're not pulling together, I think, as well as we could be to, to make a change. You know, when I, and you say, okay, well, what would you do? Well, I'd go back to, you know, what's this opting out of math and English and science, you know? There's a core curriculum that you have to be in order to be a functioning member of society. You don't get to opt out. You don't get to get, you know, promoted forward if you didn't pass it. We used to have to take standardized exams. Either you passed the standardized exam or you didn't. If you didn't pass the standardized exam, you knew what grade you were going to be in next year. Um, and for some reason, we don't seem to be willing to do that. And we need to do it as a nation, not in pockets. And today, we're doing it in pockets like a soda straw. Great. Yes, sir. We'll make that the last question. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Austin. Manny Ikpo, uh, I'd like to follow up on the last question. I uh, came into this country from Africa, <clears throat> and I found out that my level of high school education, I was surprised when I came to university, that uh, it was quite, uh, at some level, even better. I was shocked. People thought I went to London and school and come here, and I said, no. I knew calculus and I knew F equals MA. Uh, I went to the chemistry lab and I performed very well. But what, what I'm looking at, uh, listening to kids today, is that there isn't much of an emphasis on this particular subject of math and science and engineering. And there's no focus. Is it because uh, the kids don't see people, engineers like you, uh, CEOs of corporations, uh, out in the limelight? to talk and so they can get excited about it? Uh, or is it there so much uh, distortion on television these days that really don't give them enough time to concentrate? There's no motivation, like one of your five, uh, five core values was commitment to the people, the families not motivating them. I'm not sure I understand what the problem is, but if you look at state level, uh, K through 12, uh, there isn't much emphasis uh, on on mother's side. What can people like you on your level, uh, very sharp, and others of your level also maybe form a group that can really uh, talk to the, the schools? Uh, it's very important from K, K through 12 to emphasize that if you then make those things important, then you lose later on the capability of, of the working force. And then jobs get moved overseas and we'll lose those uh, ability to produce the things that used to be uh, commonplace in the, future, uh, in the past? Great question. I, I don't have data that I can offer um, uh, a, a specific answer for you, but I'll give you my opinion about that. Uh, I think role models are important, uh, and I think that it's helpful, although I'll tell you, I, I never met an engineer in my life uh, until fairly, you know, when I was in graduate school, I didn't have that role model. Uh, what I had were two parents who knew that the, the only chance you had was to have a good education. Uh, and if I had come home and said, you know, I was talking to my friends and I don't really need that math class and it turns out I can graduate without it, um, you know, I wouldn't have finished the sentence, you know. <laughs> this is before child abuse was not allowed. But, um, so, so I think that it, it really is very um, key to our educational system about saying that there are people who know what's important for a child to know in those first 12 years and that we ought to make that as uh, this is what you have to do in order to be a member of our society. You have to complete this, this program. If there are people who need an exception, that's fine, but that should be an exception, not the rule. Uh, otherwise, you have, you're, you're graduating large numbers of people who really don't have uh, good literacy uh, or a good math science background. And, and that just does not make for good citizens. I think our schools are struggling. Our teachers feel underpaid and underappreciated. Uh, as every state has budget problems coming from California, I can tell you we have our share. Uh, one of the places that ends up being the bill players is our school systems. Uh, our classrooms are overcrowded. Our schools are not being um, refurbished. Uh, they don't have the technology in them that you know our students need to have access to. Every student needs to 
be technolo technologically savvy. I don't, I'm not saying that we give everybody a calculator because I still believe you, you need to understand what you're doing. But I do think that uh, our schools, you know, need to be have a high standard about, you know, what can you say about a student who has come through our system. And today, I don't know that we could be proud of what we're producing out of our school systems nationwide. Uh, I do what I can in terms of supporting STEM initiatives, getting out, talking to students, visiting schools, bringing students into our facility, giving tours. You know, um, I, I do as much of that as my you know calendar, and sometimes more than my calendar will permit. But um, it's you know swinging at nets when you know really we we've got a much bigger problem that we we have to embrace and. Uh, I know that this is something that's uh, high on the academy's list, um, the grand challenges, the um, science fairs, you know, anything we can do to inspire kids, uh, you've got people who are willing to do it. But it really, I think, is a national problem. Uh, it is maybe even a national crime that we can't make education a priority, that you say, you know, every child will be educated. With that, it's getting late. Let me thank you all again. My name is J.D. Tolosic, and you've been listening to a podcast sponsored by Cultural Programs of the National Academy of Sciences. Be sure to visit us at our website, www.cpnas.org, for our listing of exhibitions, programs, and other events where we explore the intersections of art, science, and culture. <laughs>